Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Uh, scripture reading today is from Mark 8, 22 to 26, and Mark chapter 9, 2 to 10. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, What do you see? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, O Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Good morning again, and welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square. We are in the middle of a series where we are trying to look at questions that Jesus asked. And we're doing that because asking questions is a skill, it's a talent, and it's increasingly a rare talent. Because we live in a world that does not ask questions of one another, which is sort of the irony of our age these days, which is we live in a time when we have more access to content than ever before at our fingertips, and yet we are rapidly decreasing in dialogue with people that we differ with. So we cancel, we ignore, we, we ghost them, and therefore we dehumanize other folks with our lack of curiosity. And so what we've set out to do as a church is we're trying to develop this skill set of curiosity in our lives. And we're looking at questions that Jesus asked, trying to glean strategies, trying to glean uh, skill sets to become curious people. And what we're doing today is we're looking at the only time the only miracle for Jesus that was a two-step process. 
The only time that it looked like the first time it didn't work. And a lot of commentaries, a lot of people have said, wait a second, why is this? Is, is Jesus' miracle juice running out? Is, is Jesus not as powerful as we thought? Is, is there something different that's happening here? And so what I would like us to do today is I would like us to look at this passage in two parts. Not three. See, so super special today. Just two parts. We're going to look at you're blind and how to see. The problem is you're blind, solution how to see. So first, you're blind. And a lot of you might push back right away and go, wait a second, how is a miracle, how's a story about Jesus healing somebody else's blindness? How you turn that around on us and saying that we're the ones who are blind? I think the answer is you have to first zoom out a little bit and look at the context that this is all being written in. In the book of Mark, what has happened right before this is the Pharisees have come looking for a sign. They're, they're trying to see it, and they don't see it. And then the disciples start talking about what they think is the nature of reality, about bread and about other things. And Jesus cuts, cuts them off and says in verse 18, Do you have eyes but fail to see? That was, by the way, that's four verses before this text. So it's, it's almost as if Jesus says, Hey, can you not see? And then he goes through this particular miracle. The Greek in, the, in our text actually suggests this as well. The word for eyes in verse 23 is not the typical word that you would use for bodily, physical eyes. It's actually the poetical Greek word, which probably means that the, the writer is alluding to some sort of sight that's more than meets the eye. You see what I did there? You see that? What did, you, did, you, did you see what I did about seeing? Okay, no. You guys, you guys aren't awake yet. Come on. Let's, a little bit. Come on. Let's, let's, do, let's do this. Zoom out a little bit further. Jesus, in his miracles, he's risen people from the dead, right? Uh, go, to Mark, go, go to Matthew chapter 8. The centurion comes to Jesus and says, heal my, my, my servant. And what does Jesus do? He goes, hey, go back. He's, it's already been done. He doesn't actually even have to be there. He doesn't even have to say anything. He has to just think it, and it happens. So Jesus is that powerful. He does not need to spit on this person's eyes. He doesn't need this two-step two process. And so we have to ask ourselves, why here? Why now? And the answer that the context and the Greek and the situation necessitates is he's trying to tell those around him and us today that you're blind, that you can't see spiritually, that you can't see emotionally, that you can't see relationally. And by the way, we're not talking about non-believers. We're talking about who, who is he talking to? He's talking to his disciples, the people who were the closest to him, the people who saw him every single day. And yet the text is saying, they still didn't see. They see, but like this man, they see kind of like trees walking. In a lot of commentaries I was reading, it, it's an allusion to this person must have been able in the first step to see the shadows, the aspects, things were like, but, they didn't, but he couldn't quite see. So disciples had been with Jesus every day, but they still couldn't see him. They see the shape of Jesus. They see the shadow of Jesus. They see aspects of Jesus, but not the real Jesus. And you say today, well, maybe you're here and you're saying, I'm just, I'm here. I've maybe grown up in the church. Maybe you're questioning Christianity, but you're looking for evidence. I'll fully give my life to this if I can just see him, if I can see him living and working and acting in my life. But the disciples had that. They had the miracles. The, the, the miracle that we're about to go through in chapter 9, 
They saw Jesus, and they still didn't see Jesus. What happens? They go up onto this mountain, the transfiguration, and immediately they start trying to build shelters for Moses and Elijah for Jesus. First of all, they misread the situation. It's not a permanent one. Secondly, if you look at verse 5, that Peter starts calling Jesus rabbi. Rabbi means teacher. And clearly, this is after the dazzling white display. Jesus is not just a teacher. And then in verse 8, it says they looked around. Again, notice the eyes. The Matthew account of the transfiguration, it says that they looked up and lifted their eyes. And what did they see? Look at our verse 10. They kept the matters to themselves, discussing the rising from the dead, whatever that meant. They still couldn't see. You say, what's the point? The point is this. Being around Jesus is not enough. These disciples were around Jesus. They gave their lives to Jesus. I think there's a lot of people, today included, we say, oh, okay, I, I, if I just have intellectual assent, if I just believe, that's it. But that's still not seeing Jesus. You can call yourself a Christian today. This is probably why a lot of you, potentially in your journey, you might have said that, and then you say, I still don't see the power. I'm still sad. I still don't see, Why am I no different? Why is there no change? And the answer to that is because our problem is that we think spiritually seen is supposed to be an instantaneous moment. It's like instant grits. We want it now. We want, we want instant gratification. And that's not how it works. That's not how it ever works. In, in life, it's always a process. It's always a process. That if, if we want to be one and done, but that's not how it works. And it's a process for you to know your job, is it not? It's a process to know your friends. It's a process to know your spouse. And therefore, it'll be, it's going to be a process to know him. That it takes time for the disciples to see. It's going to, it took time for this man to see. And that means it's going to take time for you and me to see. And that means it's not enough to just go to church on Sundays and try hard and be good. That's not how it works. That this man thought he was seen, and yet it was like a tree walking around in the shadow. Jesus was just a shadow to them. Have you ever seen a tree walking around? Don't you dare say the Lord of the Rings, you know, the Ents and stuff like that. That's <laughs> fantasy. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking in reality. Have you ever really seen trees walking around? The answer is no, because that doesn't really happen. But that means that if Jesus is like a walking tree, then you're not really seeing him in reality either. I think the reason why we lack the power to handle the hurt, the heartache, the tears, the suffering, the, sh the guilt, the shame, the reason why is because we're not really seeing Jesus. And I think the text, by the way, tell there's two types of blindness here. The obvious one, the man is blind, so that's not seeing Jesus. But the disciples, they thought they saw, but they didn't see. So there's a, there's a kind of blindness that's blind to your blindness. Right? You can be blind and not see Jesus, but you can be blind about thinking that you do see him. But then when you're in despair and you're running away, which the disciples do, and when you've given up and you've turned away, you're being blind to your blindness. You can't see that you can't see. And I think that's what the text is tr first trying to tell us here. At the beginning of seeing, by the way, for this blind man, you know what the beginning of seeing is? Admitting that you can't see. It's the first step. is admission. That the blind man did something, by the way, that, that as I was thinking about this all week, he did something that on record we don't never see the disciples ever doing while Jesus was alive. And that was admitting that, they, that, he, that he couldn't see. In fact, it's his admission that leads him 
to Jesus in the, in the first place. In other words, you're never going to seek Jesus unless you can admit that you're not seeing Jesus. I believe, I mean, look, I love Peter. Peter's so confident, and the, the Pharisees are so full of zeal and the conviction, but they never ever say, I can't see him right. And notice the process, by the way. The process is this. He goes, uh, hey, I can't see. Jesus puts some spittle on his, on his eyes, and he doesn't declare, I'm healed. Because there's probably great pressure to say, hey, I can at least see something, but he doesn't do that. He says, no, I still can't see. I can barely see. He also doesn't do the other thing, right? He doesn't say, oh, stink. I put all my hope into this. You kinda, it kind of worked, but it didn't quite work, and so I'm out of here because it didn't give me what I wanted. How many times have we been like, you know what? I was around. I did this, but it didn't really give me what I wanted, and so you know what? I'm done. I'm out. He didn't do that either. Martin Lloyd-Jones, writing about this particular passage, he said, you can be sure that you're finally seeing, or you're beginning to see, when you can admit that you can't, and you still seek him. And so spiritual healing begins by seeking spiritual healing. And, by, and then how do, let me try to make this as stark as possible. This is different than belief. In the Bible, demons, powers, and principalities believed Jesus, but they didn't seek healing. It's not about belief. It's admitting that I don't see him. And so to truly see or, or seek seeing him, you can't seek passively. I, I, often I would, I've met people in their own journey and they say, I, I don't see Jesus. I'm like, well, have you put yourself around him? Have you tried looking for him? Do you go and put yourself around other people seeking him? Do you study? Do you seek his face, his healing touch? That's all part of seeking the healing of Jesus. So today, if you're not sure what you believe, even if you are sure, the process, the way it works, is getting up every single day and saying, Jesus, I know that I don't see clearly. Help me see. And unless you help me see, I'm never going to see. It's a process. And I want to ask you before we move on, are you up for that process? Where today might you not be seeing Jesus? Where today might you think you're seeing Jesus, but you're not really? Begin that process. It's never too late. I can see that I can't see. But I want to see more today than I did yesterday. Don't be blind to your blindness, first point. Okay. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. Okay, last point. The solution. Let's say after a mission, let's say you, you, you have the ability to say, okay, I can't see things clearly. When Jesus looks and says this question, do you see? If your answer is, well, not well, then what's the solution? Two parts. Realization and revelation. There's something you have to realize, and there's something that has to be revealed to you. First, realization. I think it's becoming more and more prominent in New York City to say this phrase, I'm spiritual but not religious. And I know this because when I first became a minister, when people would find out that I was a minister growing up in this town, their, their face kind of scrunched up like, ew. <laughs> or if we're out eating, say, check please. You know, people would always want to get out. But I'm noticing more and more people, are, when I, they find that I'm a minister, it's more curiosity. They're like, oh, 
I'm spiritual, but not religious. I, okay, tell me more. I mean, there's, there's a, a curiosity on their end, which we're trying to develop on our own. But when I ask them, okay, what does that look like for them? They say, well, I go on top of mountaintops. I look for sunrises. I look for uh, hikes. I go into creation to get in touch with the spirituality. And by the way, personally, I love a good sunset. I love a good hike. I love creation. I love going out and, and going to remote places. But I would argue that's not how you're going to overcome blindness. How do I know that? Because Jesus doesn't tell folks, hey, to fix your blindness, just go off out on a hike and go up a mountain. He doesn't do that. Interestingly, what he does do is he does take them on a hike, does he not? Look at verse, uh, well, I guess we, we, I gave you verse, yeah, there is two, verse 2. The six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain. He went for a hike. But he doesn't say, hey, go to the hike. Here's on top of the mountaintop. Go look out. Go look out there. No, he, what does he do? He says, hey, come and look in here. And what happens? They still don't see Jesus. They don't see him even though in his most glorious state he's been revealed. And I think that's the reason why there's this theophonic glory cloud that shows up. God shows up in a cloud because these people, the closest friends of Jesus, still can't see Jesus. And what does the cloud say? One statement, three parts. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. I want to quickly just go through each one of those aspects, right? This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. This is my son. What does that mean? At the very least, theologically, it means this. It means you're not, he's not just a teacher. He's not just a good guy. He's not just somebody to emulate. This is my son means that the dazzling, blinding glory that is happening here, it's alluding to the very same glory that was on Moses after he was in that cleft and God walked by in the Old, Old Testament he went down from the mountain, and nobody could look at his face because it was so bright. That's that kind of glory that was on Moses, is, on, is now in Jesus. It's the same glory that cracked the earth in the Old Testament. It's the same glory that was in the wind. It's the same glory that was in the whisper. And now that's, that glory of the Holy of Holies is in Jesus. And until we see that, we're, not, we're blind. Another thing about, about sonship, I looked this up in the commentary. In the ancient Near East, if you're somebody's only son, that means you're the person who's going to inherit all of the father's possessions, which meant that you actually were equal in status. So my son meant this person fits in line with who I am as well. That's what it means to be my son. Now, whom I love. You could do a whole separate sermon on just this, these three words. But if I could be really tight on this, the profound deep love of God the Father for his Son means utter and complete union. It means full acceptance, full assurance, full sharing of assets and value and trust. Love is such a fuzzy word in English, but it's such a concrete word in commitment and, and understanding. It's not just acceptance, it's trust and mutuality and respect and honor and partnership. Which, by the way, if you want to start amazing yourself, when you hear in Christianity, that union with Christ, what that means is not just an intellectual concept. It's a, a cosmic connection that affords us the indwelling Holy Spirit that resides with us, that brings about all the rights and privileges of the sons and daughters of God. The implication of this phrase right here, whom I love, 
God to Jesus, then when we're in Jesus, we get the same, the same benefits, the same aspects. He loves us that way as well. And lastly, listen to him. You say, wait a second. Haven't the disciples been listening to him? My mother told me long ago, and still tells me, there's a difference between hearing and listening. That you can hear and not be listening. That you can hear Jesus, but not be listening to Jesus. You say, well, what might not they have been hearing? Well, the entire story of the Bible, the arc of the entire creation, summarized into one statement is this. It's not working. The process that you're on is not working. The, the plan of the world is not working. There's more fragmentation. There's more disassociation. There's more dehumanization. There's more brokenness in so many different aspects. And that process is not working. And therefore, I have to die for you. That's what Jesus has been trying to say. And we know they're not actually listening because look at verse 10. They kept the matter to themselves discussing, what does the rising from the dead mean? They still couldn't hear. They listened. They, they, they heard it, but they weren't listening. Because it's this. If Jesus has to die, then there's something so tragic, there's something so broken in us that no amount of self-optimization, no amount of, of tweaking, no amount of schedule changing is going to actually fix us. Self-salvation is like a cancer with 100% mortality. It's going to get us all. Because that's the natural state of the human heart. So much so that the God of the universe had to come down in a cloud and at least say these statements to try to help the friends of Jesus to realize, because they still couldn't see. And that if he has to say, listen to him, it meant that they weren't listening. And so the question, the million-dollar question for us this morning is this. Will we? Will we listen? Or will we just hear what we want to hear? That's the end. Right? That, this, this is, we can walk away at this point. That, that is what this text is trying to tell us. My kids and I play a game on the subway platform. When you know, we're on the platform in the subway and there's an express train that goes by, whatever you're talking about just gets drowned out. You can't hear anything. And so the game is that when that happens, we, we keep pretending like we're talking. There's no voice coming out, but we kind of like move our mouths like this. Like. And then when the train finally goes by, we say, and that was the meaning of life. And so sorry. Oh, you didn't hear that? Oh, I'm so sorry. I, try, I can't tell you again. Yeah, too bad. And we kind of, you know, that's the nerdy Kellers. That's what we do. Um, what this text is trying to tell us, what it's trying to say here, is life is a loud train of distraction. But the purpose and meaning of life is very simple. This is my son, whom I love, Listen to him. And we could end right now and say, go and do, let's pray. And if we did that, that wouldn't be very helpful for you. <laughs> because you're not going to do it. And you're not going to do it because you're blind. You're not going to do it because we can't and we won't. And that means the last thing we need is actually revelation. You need revelation to get the realization, to get to the deeper understanding that we're blind. So what's the re revelation here? Well, Go back to the story with the blind man. And there's a question I've been asking for a long, long time, not just in this passage. Why is it that whenever Jesus heals you, he says, keep it quiet? Look what it, look what it says in verse 26. Don't even go into the village. 
over and over and over again, and I've, I've tried, tried to read commentaries about this. A lot of times they, they say, well, it's because if they talked too early, then Jesus' ministry would have ended too soon, and people would try to kill him too early. That's still not the full answer. I think that he says the same thing in verse 9 to the disciples. As they're coming down, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone. But there's a caveat in this one. Until, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Have you ever wondered why? Why does Jesus in this one say, no, you can tell, but just wait until after I'm, I've risen from the dead. Why? And I think the answer that we see from history is that the only way that you can fully really under, understand Jesus is after the resurrection. Why is that? It's because there's no way to rightly understand Jesus until you've seen him suffer and die and rise again for you. Prove it? Well, the disciples saw Jesus as a teacher. wasn't enough. They saw Jesus suffer. It wasn't enough. Right? Jesus' best friend, Peter, the day he was arrested, denies him four to- three times. There's no way that just seeing Jesus is enough. Even in his death, what happened to the disciples? They go up to a, a house and they huddle together, scared witless. It was only after the resurrection that you can't see Jesus until you have all three, the suffering of Jesus, the death of Jesus, but him rising again. When you hold those together and experience them in your life and in your heart, that's what's going to lead to the revelation. In fact, let me, I, I don't want to put too fine a point on here. The glory of Jesus during the transfiguration, as bright and as glorious as that was, I would argue it didn't transform these people, and it wouldn't transform you. And as much as you want to seek that, I would argue you shouldn't seek it, because it doesn't have the power to change you. Jesus' radiating glory most breaks into your life, not through a bright mountain, but in the gloom of the hill near Jerusalem. Jesus' bright, radiating glory most will break into your heart, not when he's most honored, but when he's most shamed on the cross. Not when he's clothed, but when he's stripped naked. Not when he is between two friends in brightness, but between two thieves in darkness. That is what's going to change you. And I, you're still pushing back. You're saying, okay, prove it again. Okay, look at these disciples. During Jesus' life, they're a mess. And even when their leader is killed, they're a mess. But after the resurrection, they are scattered. And actually, we know for many of them in history, they are killed too. But they're able to handle the challenges that came. Why? Because the resurrection is proof to you and me that whatever you're going through, this too shall pass. And it will be redeemed and it will be remade, and it will be renewed. And it doesn't, the, the things and circumstances and sufferings of your life, and everybody in this room has them, they don't have the last say on your life. And my question to you is, is, do you have that? Do you see that? That you shouldn't be coming to church just to check off a box. You should be coming to church because you're, you're seeking the glory of Jesus. And you can have aspects of it in the music, and you can have it sometimes in the sermons, and you can have it in the liturgy, you can have it in all these different spaces. But it ultimately comes in the cross and resurrection. That's what brings new eyesight. That's when you can really sense, this is my son who I love. And now I'm a daughter, and I'll never change. And now I'm a son, and that'll never change. 
That will bring joy and wonder. And you'll be able to be curious people. What curiosity is it? Is it posture of looking past your navel out there, and you can only do that if your needs have been met to such a degree that you can now be more concerned about them than about yourself. I was, um, when I was up in Boston, I met Peter Kraft. He was a professor at Boston College. He was telling a story to a bunch of us about his next-door neighbor who, uh, they, they weren't believers. They didn't believe in anything. And this, this family had a six-year-old son whose cousin had died, and the mother was trying to research ways to talk about death to their six-year-old son. So she read some books, but she couldn't talk about, like, heaven or a better place. And so she sat her son down and said, hey, death is natural. Death is coming for us all. It's okay. You're going to be part of the ground one day. It's the circle of life, right? It's like Lion King, Simba. And the son heard that. You know what the son did? He ran out of the room screaming, I don't want to be fertilizer. I don't want to be fertilizer. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not making fun of this, this, this boy. I'm actually, I believe this boy is acutely aware that if there's nothing else out there, then there is no real hope. Suffering really does have the last say. But if Jesus rose from the dead, and you will be with him, and he will be with me, that will change your everyday posture today. It'll change how you live. It'll change how you act. It'll change who you hang out with. It'll change what you do when you hang out with them. It'll change how you handle stress, how you handle adversity, how I live my life. Friends, desire this over everything else. You could hear the literal voice of God, and it won't change you. It happened here. And that should be encouraging to you. You know why? Because you don't actually have to seek it. You could hear it, fine, great. But you don't actually have to seek a vision from heaven. It won't be enough anyway. But what you do need to see is that you don't see. And when you realize you don't see, and you see him on the cross more and more, and you see him in the resurrection more and more, that will bring wonder and awe and joy and life. Friends, we're trying to live joy in a joyless world. We're trying to live hope in a hopeless world. And that will happen when we see the beauty of Jesus melting our stony hearts, bringing strength to these weak eyes, so that we can see and say, I trust that one who did all this. And if you do that, when you see that he gave his life for you, you'll give your life to him. And yeah, I would argue you're not seeing him unless you see his love for you. But if you do, then you can actually, you know, what can actually ultimately get you down? Who can actually ultimately, ultimately get you down? No one and nothing. Friends, I would argue that we need to ask ourselves daily, what can we stop today or what can we start today to begin listening to him? What can I realize today that I'm not seeing that I didn't realize yesterday? What blindness will we see and turn to him? Friends, I don't think you can say and come with conditions. Listen, I'll listen to you, but you first got to listen to me. I, I want you to listen to me about how I think my life should go and, and how I think uh, I, you know, sexuality and sex should go and how I think right and wrong should go. That's not trusting him. That's not listening to him. No, if he's God and I'm not, then we let him in and we trust that he knows more than we know and we trust him. And I think he's proven he's trustworthy because of his love found on the cross, proved on the resurrection. John Newton, who did some of the worst atrocities known to mankind, he, was, he participated in the African-American slave trade. He, 
became converted and became a minister and wrote hymns, including Amazing Grace. But he wrote another one that never got put to music. I'm going to read it real quickly. Poor though I am, despised for God, yet God my God forgets me not. And he is safe and must succeed, for whom Christ promises to plead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we sing these songs of transcendence. We sing about holy, holy, holy. We sing about how we need sight, even in that song. Because we're blind to our blindness. Help us to, to see that. And you know what? If that happened, we would be, it, would, it would give us pause. We'd be a little more humble. We'd be a little less willing to mouth off. We'd be more likely to listen. And what we would see, what we'd hear is your love for us. And that would change us, Father. We would know that we were loved into the sky. Nothing can bring us down. And we would know that we, we, were need, we needed your love. Which meant we would never get too high either. But bracketed, needed but loved, we can move out into this world in new and profound ways. Loving and serving. Caring about folks cosmically and temporally. I pray this would move into our hearts in new and profound ways. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.